Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now this is a very, very familiar passage of Scripture. We've heard this over and over many times. But I'm hoping that tonight God will take you a little bit deeper into this section. Paul's now moving on in this last section of his letter. When I say the last section, chapters 12 through 16 are the last section of Romans here. Paul now moves on in this last section of his letter to the, that he's writing to the Roman church to teach on how we should live as believers in light of all that he has just laid out for us. We've, if you remember from our study of Romans, he's laid out the gospel. Now he's not ashamed of the gospel and how it's available to Jew and Gentile. Even though the Jews had more revealed, it's available to all. We looked at the fact that God's saving Gentiles to make Jews jealous and he's not done with the nation of Israel. And, and he's been laying out this deep theology. Now in this last section, he's going to be showing us how we should we live then as the church, as believers. There's going to be a lot of specific instructions as to how we're to live. And I can't wait to break them all down. But he begins to lay this out. But before we get into verses one and two, there's something that Paul does here that grabbed my attention as I studied these verses again, I've been preaching for almost 40 years. And I really had never studied the first ver words of Romans 12, 1 and 2. And something jumped off the page at me that I can't wait to show you. Look at what it says. Paul said, it says, Paul speaking, he says, I appeal to you. Let's just stop right there. Paul appeals to his readers to do what he teaches next should be our response to God and all the theology he's laid out. He appeals. Now, some of your translations might say beg. Others might say plead. Some of your translations say urge. Some might even say beseech. But let that sink in for a minute. Paul says, I beg you. I appeal to you. I beseech you. I, I urge you. I plead with you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And we're going to get to that in just a little bit. And so I started to do a little study and I realized Paul actually used that approach a lot. I was surprised at how often Paul would beg and plead with people. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verse 10. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says this. He says, I appeal to you, brothers... By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you that all of you agree and that there be no, no divisions among you, that you, you be in, united in the same mind, in the same judgment. So here, dealing with that issue of division that was going on in the Corinthian church, he appealed again to them. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, look at verses 1 and 2. In 2 Corinthians 10, verses 1 and 2, this is what Paul says. He says, I, Paul, myself, entreat you. There's another one. I entreat you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. I, and then he describes how they talked about him. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I'm away. I beg of you that when I'm present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. So there again, he says, I, I appeal to you. I beg, I beseech you. I, I, I entreat you. Go to Ephesians chapter four. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. 
Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3, Paul says there, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience and bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So here it is. He says, I urge you. So I'm going to ask you a question. Paul had what role in the church? He was an, a, a what? An apostle. But not just a small A apostle. He was a capital A apostle. He had ta been taught by Jesus face to face. He had been given authority by God. He was able to do miracles to show that he had that authority from God. I mean, God's used him to write most of our New Testament. Did Paul have the authority to command people to do these things? Yes, he did. He had been given authority to command people to do it. But he didn't command people. He begged people. He appealed. He beseeched. He urged. He pled. He entreated. And I started to do a little race wrestling with, okay, why didn't you just use your authority? Well, the, actually, the Bible actually tells us why. Go to Philemon. The book of Philemon is right before the book of Hebrews. There's only one chapter in Philemon, and it's a letter that Paul is writing to a believer named Philemon. And Philemon had a servant, a slave, who ran away and actually stole some things from his master and then ran away. And when he was out there running away, he runs into Paul and becomes a believer. And when Paul finds out that he was a runaway slave from someone he knew, Paul sent, him, sent Onesimus, this is a slave, back to Philemon with this letter. And listen to what Paul says. He's actually telling Philemon, I want you to take him back. I want you to treat him well. Don't be rough with him. Whatever he's stolen from you, I'll pay it back. But he's now a brother in the Lord. And I want you to take him back. Listen to what, what, how Paul says it, though, in Philemon verses 8 through 14. He says, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Jesus Christ, I appeal to you from my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he's indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Did Paul have the authority to order and command Philemon to take Onesimus back? Yeah, he was an apostle. He had been given authority. You do know the Bible says in, in Acts chapter, sorry, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, obey your leaders. The Bible actually says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12, to respect those who are over you in the Lord and respect them and, and hold them in high regard because of the work that they've been given. There is authority in the church. And Paul had a lot more authority than most pastors do today. He was an apostle, a capital A apostle. But he never used that authority. He begged. He pleaded. Why? The answer is right there. Because he wanted their response to be done out of love, not under compulsion, but actually out of a heart of gratitude and submission on their own choice. Now we're going somewhere with this. That's exactly how God deals with us. 
do, does Jesus not have the authority to command us to do things? Does he have not also the authority to make us do things? But he pleads with us. He begs us. He offers us the opportunity to respond. He will not force us. You have a choice. But as you're about to see, the scripture shows us over and over that, that Jesus wants it to be our response to be out of our own will, willingly, lovingly, not under compulsion. As that's why Paul even talked about that when it talked about giving in the church. God loves a cheerful giver. He doesn't want our giving to be under compulsion. Now, I have to be honest with you. This is a very important aspect of how I've started to begin to grow in my walk with the Lord over the years of walking with him, because I was taught that you had a duty and an obligation. And much of what I did to the Lord, even though I was doing the right things, was because it was expected and I had to. And I didn't do the right things out of love for the Lord. I did the right things out of obligation. And it's my duty. And it's my, you see what I'm saying? And God was not pleased even though I was doing the right things, he was not pleased. Go to Isaiah chapter 65. It's a passage we've seen earlier in our study as we looked at the fact that God's going to save the Gentiles and the Jews kept rejecting him. But let's go back and read it again. Isaiah 65 verses 1 and 2. God is speaking and he says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. That's the Gentiles. I said, here I am. Here I am. To a nation that was not called by my name. And then he says, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good following their own devices. Did Jesus not call out to us and say, here I am, come find me? Did he also at the same time not continually hold out his hands to a rebellious people and plead with them to respond and to humble themselves? That's how God is. That's, he, he is God, and one day when the final judgment comes, he's going to separate those who have responded appropriately in faith and those who haven't, but he doesn't force us. His commands are not burdensome. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. But he wants what we do to be done from our own choice, not under, under compulsion. There are, we'll go to Revelation chapter 3. Years ago, as you're turning to Revelation chapter 3, I remember a sermon that was preached by a pastor in New Orleans. He's still there. His name's Fred Luter. He preached a sermon years ago called Changing Your Got-Tos to Get-Tos. In other words, instead of saying, I got to go to church, I get to go to church. Instead of saying, I've got to give my money to the Lord and the things of the Lord, I get to give my money to the things of the Lord. Look at Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. He says, first, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Do you see it again? Here he is pleading to the church in the last days. I'm knocking, but I want you to open the door. Could he force the door open? Yes, he could. He could even walk through the door. But he wants us to respond. Go back to Revelation chapter 2. And look at what he says here in verses 1 and following. 
says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Now stop for a second. Look what he says. I know your works. I know what you're doing. I know your actions, your toil, your patient endurance, how you can't bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently. You're bearing up for my name's sake and you haven't grown weary. Doesn't it sound like they're about to be praised? But look at what he says next. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I'm going to come and remove your lampstand. I'm going to remove that church. Listen closely. They were doing the right things, but they weren't doing it out of love anymore. It was now obligation and compulsion. And let me say something to you, and that's where we're going to be heading tonight as we take a look at offering our bodies as a living sacrifice our worship of the Lord, our service to the Lord should never be forced or under compulsion, but should always come from a heart of love and gratitude and worship. Now, that's a change from a lot of what a lot of us have been taught. Now that God's done all this for you, you owe it to him to do. Have you heard all that stuff? God says, I don't want you feeling like you're paying me back. I want you just to say thank you and do it out of love. And that's why Paul says, I appeal to you. I beg you. I don't want it to be under compulsion. I want you to do it out of your own will. We'll get to that in just a second. Go back, though, to Joshua. Chapter 24, a passage of scripture that maybe many of you might have a plaque on your wall. We have a choice not only to respond to God's offer of salvation by grace and faith, but also we get to choose each day whether we'll offer ourselves to him as a living sacrifice. Let me show you a couple of passages that say, say this. Go to Joshua 24, verses 14 and 15. I'm going, to say, I'm going to read these from my notes again. We have a choice not only to respond to his offer of salvation by grace and faith, but we also get to choose each day whether we'll offer ourselves to him as a living sacrifice. In Joshua 24, verses 14 and 15, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you'll serve. Whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let me ask you a question, folks. When, people, when it comes to salvation, do people have a choice? Or is that already predetermined by God and he just does it and they have no choice? Well, the Bible is very, very clear. Everyone has a choice. He could do it where he made us like puppets and we had no say whether or not we'd be saved. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God wants your response to be of your own volition out of love. And gratefulness, and we'll see more of that later tonight. But go to Romans 6. It's not just we choose whether or not we're going to respond to his offer of salvation. Now, as you're turning to Romans 6, let me, let me just show you something kind of cool. Have you ever noticed that uh, salvation and how God does salvation is like a game of hide and seek? Let it sink in for a minute. It's like a game of hide and seek. 
When you play hide and seek, you say, I'm going to go hide, but you have to come find me. Correct? God begins the game and he says, I'm here, but now you have to come find me. And you'll find me if you seek me with your whole heart. But he wants us to respond. Without faith, it's impossible to please God for he, we must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. But the Bible also says no one seeks God unless he begins the game. But he also has said it so that he says, I'm here. Here I am. Here I am. But you must now respond. But salvation isn't the only way in which he gives us the choice of whether or not we're going to respond to him. The Bible also says once we've been saved and once we've been sealed, we and you're going to see this later on in Romans 12, 1 and 2. We choose daily whether or not we're going to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, which, as you're going to see in a little bit, is our spiritual worship or reasonable service. We'll wrestle with that in just a little bit. But listen to Romans 6, starting in verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members or your body parts to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your body parts as to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your body as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your body as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. You have to choose and you get to choose every day now. Not only do we get to choose whether we respond to his offer of grace and we better offer respond while the door is open because he determines how much light we get and when our opportunity is done. But not only that, once we've been saved, we must choose each day whether or not we're going to serve him, whether or not we're going to live for self, whether or not we're going to be conformed to the pattern of this world or whether or not we're going to renew our minds and offer ourselves to him in worship. But go back to Romans 12, 1 and 2. We should submit ourselves to God in view of what? It's right there in his, by his mercy. You see it? And I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God or in view of God's mercy. Because of his mercy, in gratitude for his mercy toward us. Remember how we ended last Bible study in Romans eleven thirty six 36, that this is all about God. This is his plan. He's been setting. He set it up before the foundation of the world. He's acting out in his plan according to his, how he wants. This is all about him from him to him for him through him. It's all about him to him be the glory. Correct. Let, let's let's take a step back and get a big picture. As we've been seeing from the scriptures, God has worked in different time periods throughout history in different ways. It's always been by faith and by grace, God's grace through faith that we respond to him. But he worked one way in the garden. 
And then, as we've seen in the Bible, between the time that Adam and Eve sinned in the garden until the time of the law, there was the age of conscience, and he worked in another way. And then there was the time of the law, and now we're in the church age, and the church age is going to come to a close, and there's going to be a tribulation period, and then there's going to be a millennial thousand-year kingdom on the earth, and then finally the eternal state. God's got this big plan that Paul just ended up with in chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the wisdom and the riches and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. Who's ever given to God that God should repay him? Who's ever been his counselor? All this. It's all about him. Yet even though this is all about him, in his mercy and his grace, he has chosen to let us be a part of it. And not only has he chosen to let us be a part of it, he's also said, if you'll humble yourself in this life and let me do what I want to do in my plan for each of you, one day I'll reward you with more than you ever could fathom, but you have to be willing here in this life to lay your plans down and say, not my will, but yours. I'm your humble servant. Did Mary not offer herself as a living sacrifice when the, the Holy Spirit came and said, you're going to be the, 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 the woman who gives birth to the Messiah? Oh, and by the way, in God's plan, you're going to become pregnant even though you didn't have sex. And everyone's going to think that you're a harlot. But your husband is even going to, or your, your fiancé is even going to think to divorce you. But I'll, I'll straighten him out on that one. But you're going to begin your married life and not the way that you had dreamed your whole life. And she said, let it be to me as you have said. When Jesus tells Peter, look, I know you love me and here's how you're going to die. He described to Peter that he was going to die of crucifixion. Peter's attitude was, if that's what you've chosen for me, I'm going there. Of course, he wanted to know how, Peter, how John was going to die. But what did Jesus say? This is very important for where we're heading next week. He said, don't worry about him. What if I want him to remain alive until I return? What's that to you? One of the biggest ways or the ways that will help you Submit yourself to God is stop comparing the life that God has for you to everybody else. You run the race marked out for you. And so we need to offer our bodies, offer ourselves as a living sacrifice in view of God's mercy. Now, there's something God showed me again also in my study of this passage for our study tonight and last night and tonight that just jumped off the page that, again, I had never seen it in this way. He's forgiven us of all of our sins, has chosen to use us for his purposes and his glory. And not only that, he's promised to reward us and bless us if we let him use us as his servants. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. By the way, as you're turning to 1 Timothy 1, starting in verse 12, you remember how we all love to quote how we're co-heirs with Jesus Christ from Romans 8? Do you remember the rest of that verse? Provided we suffer with him. Nobody likes that part. Listen, you're going to be rewarded as co-heirs with Christ if you're willing to be like Christ here where Jesus laid himself down and his, the Father's plan for his life while on the earth. You need to be willing to do the same. By the way, what you're about to see and what we're about to talk about in the rest of our study tonight uh, goes against a lot of the preaching we hear in some of our bigger places today. How you can be anything you want to be. You can dream big things. You can do great things. You're an overcomer. You just name it and you claim it and you can. No, that's not what the Bible teaches for us as believers. 
There's nothing wrong with sharing with the Lord our heart's desire. But then we pray, Lord, line up my desire with your desire. Put your will in my heart. Look at what Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, though, verses 12 through 17. He, he understood that his ministry was in view of God's mercy. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But listen closely. I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, the chief sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Twice in here, he says, I'm doing what I'm doing because of God's mercy. I'm saved because of God's mercy. I, he said, I was an insolent opponent. I was a blasphemer and a persecutor. Not only that, if you hear his testimony later on in the end of the book of Acts, he'll even say, I not only put people to death, I voted yes when it was a vote whether or not we we're going to put people to death. I was chasing people all over to have them arrested and put to death. I was the worst. But God in his mercy saved me. But don't miss what he said next. I was given mercy for this reason, so that God could show that not only he saved sinners, he saved the worst of sinners, and if he saved the worst of sinners, he'll save all sinners. Hasn't Satan convinced some people out there that their sin is so bad there's no way God could ever forgive them? But I want to go back to what Paul said, and I want to start heading somewhere which will get us ready for next week. Paul said, I was given mercy for this reason. And he knew specifically why God had saved him and what the ministry he had been given was. He was serving God in obedience to the plan God had for his life in view of God's mercy to him. And he also knew that he had been given mercy for a reason. I'm going to ask you, and if you can't answer the question tonight, that's okay. But I want you to start asking the question, Lord, first of all, um, have I really understood that I'm saved because of your mercy? Because I think a lot of Christians think that, well, I wasn't that bad of a person. No, we really aren't going to really worship the way we're supposed to and offer ourselves as we ought until we truly understand the depth of our sin. Even if you get saved at eight years old. James chapter 2, verse 10 says, if you're able to keep the whole law, yet stumble at one point, you're guilty as if you broke it all. But the second part is this, and here's the question I don't think many of us might be able to answer yet. Why was I given mercy? What is the role that you have for me? You see, a lot of us just say, Lord, thank you that I'm saved. Thank you that you've given me mercy. Thank you. And God says, I didn't save you just to save you. I saved you for a reason. And I actually have been orchestrating your life and your experiences and your past and your history all toward why I saved you and what I want to do through you after you're saved. And I have a ministry in mind for you. You're going to see this in just a second. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. I have a ministry in mind for you that I had in mind before I saved you. 
See, a lot of us are just grateful that we're saved. Yeah, but why did he give you mercy? What does he have in mind to do through you? Look at Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Listen to verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul's about to move from Verses 1 and 2 where he says, offer your body as a living sacrifice into the different roles and the different gifts and the different responsibilities after salvation and how we all fit, how that all fits in. Before we can even get to that next week, we need to understand tonight how to offer ourselves and say, Lord, what is your plan for my life in view of his mercy? One Thanking him for the fact that you're even saved, because that's by his mercy. You deserved hell just as much as the hell's angels, even though you get saved at six. And on top of that, why did you give me mercy? What is the role? What are the works that you prepared in advance for me to do? The prophet Jeremiah said, God set me apart as his prophet before I was born. At the same time, Paul did Paul not want to go preach to the Jews? Of course he did. Remember, we've already read in Romans 9, if he could go to hell, if he said he could go to hell and that caused Israel to be saved, he'd do it. And when he started preaching, he just started going to the synagogues and synagogues and synagogues. But what Jesus told Ananias when he was telling Ananias that he's going to have Ananias lay hands on Paul after he was blinded and he's going to open his eyes. He, Jesus said to Ananias in Acts chapter 9, he is my chosen instrument that I'm going to use to go to the Gentiles and their kings. Do you know why Paul was willing to be beaten and arrested and imprisoned and shipwrecked as a prisoner and go to an island and end up where he ended up? You know why Paul was okay to be imprisoned so many times? Because he knew that's why God saved him. And that was the ministry that God had set aside for him. And so instead of saying, well, this really stinks. All these other Christians are getting to, not having to go through what I'm going through. Paul understood God had already. He's, and actually, Jesus tells Ananias, I will show him how much he must suffer for me. Paul had gotten to the point where he realized he was a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, have you ever noticed when he was in prison, we don't see Paul praying to get out of the prisons. What was Paul doing each time that he was in the prison? Praising God, singing, lifting up the brothers, preaching to those who were there. What did John say at the beginning of the book of Revelation? I was on the Isle of Patmos for the Lord Jesus Christ. He had been arrested, imprisoned, 
sent away to a, to a camp where no humans would ever hardly have any contact with him. I'm going to keep you from preaching this gospel. We're going to put you on an island. And guess what? While he was on the island as a servant of the Lord and worshiping the Lord, in the Lord, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and Jesus showed up and he says, I want you to get out a pen and paper. I'm going to use you to preach to nations. Isn't that amazing? Folks, the sooner we stop praying, Lord, change my situation and start saying, Lord, what is your plan for my life? Be it unto me as you have said. He will reveal that to you. But we'll get to that a little bit later tonight. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to ask you two questions as you're turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Have you received mercy in being saved? Yes. Why have you received mercy? And that's a tr tricky one there. The short answer for all of us is to do whatever it is he had planned for each of us. Correct? But some of us might not know what that is yet. Oh, relax. Don't, don't run ahead. I mean, just relax you a little bit, by the way. Satan doesn't want you to know that God saved you for a reason. Because Satan doesn't want you finding that reason. But once you realize you've been saved for a reason, he's going to come in and say, well, you better go do it now or else you'll be in trouble or you're late. Now, God's not in a hurry. He's got some things to do in your life to get you ready for whatever that ministry is. God comes to Abraham and says, you're going to be a mighty nation. It was 25 years before Isaac was born. David, you're going to be the next king of Israel, anointed by Samuel. It was 15 years before he actually became king of Israel. He had a lot more things to go through, fighting Goliath, running from Saul. Joseph was given a vision by God. I have a plan for your life. You're going to have the whole nation, all your brothers, and, 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 and so they're going to come and bow at your feet. And your mom and your dad. 20 years later, he was then in power under Pharaoh in Egypt, and they came. God's not in a hurry. Does he need you to get his stuff done? No, we already looked at that last week, didn't we? So relax. But I want you to get excited about why did God save me? And we're going to see in verses 3 through 8, or 3 through 12, uh, uh, sorry, 3 through 8 of, of Romans chapter 12, you're going to see next week, there are very specific things that each of us, there are some things that we may find, hey, that's what God's called me to do. And we're going to learn how to not think of ourselves more highly than what, but each with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith we've been given and all. We're going to deal with all that. But before we even go down that road next week of saying, okay, Lord, why did you save me? What's the ministry you have for me? What my role? How do I fit into the body? You have to go back and finish learning this lesson. And you'll see in just a second why. Second Corinthians chapter 4, look at verses 1 through 6. Therefore... Having this ministry by the mercy of God, there it is again. The mercy of God's tied to our ministry. We don't lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel's veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the man, minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach or what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. 
For God who said light, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He, Paul says we have been given our ministry because of the mercy of God. He's not only saved us, he saved us for a reason. There are works he's prepared in advance for us to do. And in, when, in our doing this ministry that he's got for us, we don't think God needs man's help. We don't try underhanded ways. We don't like come up with marketing schemes. We don't come up with man's way of accomplishing things. We believe that if God called me to this, he's going to do it. And I just simply do whatever he says. And I say what he says to say. And I'm not showing, I'm not trying to impress you with me. He says, I want you to know Jesus. And I have to be honest with you. I, I, our ministry, just the preacher, strives to function in that way. We don't advertise. I don't call churches and say, hey, I'll be in your area. I actually, and I actually drive some of our staff a little crazy sometimes because they'll say, why don't we do this? Why don't we advertise? I'm like, no, if it even looks like man's trying to help God, I go the opposite direction. But Jim, do you, I have had actually people call me saying, hey, would you like us to help you in your donor giving and receiving? I get all these things on how we got a wonderful program that, and you can track who gives and how to increase your giving. And I'm like, I don't want to go there. I don't want to get involved in that. The Lord said he'd take care of us and he does. Years ago, I was preaching at this one place and, and this other guy who was preaching there came over and the pastor introduced us both and. The guy goes, what do you do? And I said, well, mainly my role is to go around the country to churches and to Christians and to encourage them to grow in their walk with the Lord. I like to see churches get turned around and get back to walking with the Lord instead of following man's ways. And he goes, well, I'm an evangelist. And he handed me a glossy. His big eight by ten picture of his face. <laughs> he says, let's go in this team up. He said, I'm sure there are places that you go that could use what I do. And you could tell them about me. And I'll go to places that could use what you do and I'll tell them about you. And I looked at him and I said, I don't think so. He said, why not? I go, because you go at it in a way that I'm not comfortable. You're out there passing out your pictures. Our ministry goes the other way. We believe God's called us to this. And if God wants us there, the doors are going to open. And I don't want to help him. And so I actually go the opposite. I don't have a glossy. I don't advertise. I just let God do what he's going to do. By the way, I'm going to be preaching a prophecy conference for a whole weekend at a church in Scottsdale, Arizona, this coming January. By the way, I'm not too upset about having to go play golf in Scottsdale, Arizona in January. But... I still don't know how they even found out about us. But somehow they heard about our ministry. They heard about the book, what will happen next. And a lady contacted me from that church and said, our church has never really ever studied the book of Revelation. And the pastors just felt we should probably start looking into this where things are getting the way they are in the world. And they sent us out to go find someone that knows about this stuff. And we found you. Man, I love it because I can't get any credit for what was what happens there. That is something God has set up and I can't wait to get there. But we have this ministry. Whatever it is, he's gifted each of us to do by the mercy of God. And folks, I cannot stress this enough and I can't wait to preach next week's message. But I'm going to try my hardest not to. 
You won't find the peace that you have in Jesus until you find the ministry that he has for you. It's tied to why he saved you. Not just that you're saved, but why. Oh, and you're going to see there's lots of different ways that you can be used of God to serve. And some of your experiences and your past and all those things are all going to tie into what God actually has for you. And you're going to find it so much fun. But there's a couple things we need to see, though, before we get there. When we stop serving God out of obligation, but in a true response of worship and gratitude for his mercy to us, our service or our worship will be acceptable. Let me say this to you again. When we stop serving God out of obligation, but in a true response of worship and gratitude for his mercy to us, our service or worship will be acceptable. Did y'all catch a couple of words that I used interchangeably there? And I did it for a reason. Did anybody catch what words I used interchangeably? Service and what? And worship. I can't wait to show this to you because it's right here in Romans 12. And I like the fact that we probably have a bunch of different translations out there. This will help us. I'm going to read to you again Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Your worship of God is to offer yourselves to him. By the way, some of your Bibles don't say worship, do they? They'll say reasonable service. Some translations say spiritual service of worship. Here's why. And I'm going to show this to you just briefly here. In the Greek and the Hebrew, in both languages, the word service and worship are the same thing. They're interchangeable. And you're going to see that these words are used interchangeably all throughout your Bible. And it, doesn't, it isn't determined by what translation you have. Some of your translations that will use service in one place will use worship in another. It's kind of interesting, and I can't wait to show it to you. But let's let this sink in for a minute. Haven't we been taught that serving God and worshiping God are kind of two different things? Worshiping God is when you come and you sing songs and you say, God, you're awesome. I praise you. I thank you. And serving God is when you go to work for the Lord. Serving God and worshiping God are the exact same thing. I can show it to you. Not only here in 12, Romans 12, 1. Go with me to Psalm 100, verse 2. Psalm 100, verse 2. My translation, which just said worship in chapter 12, verse 1 of Romans, here in Psalm 100, verse 2 says, Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. How many of your translations don't say serve, but say worship the Lord? Isn't that interesting? Mine said worship in Romans, but here it says serve. Some of yours that said serve in uh, Romans now say worship in, uh, in Psalms. Go to Acts 17. Look at verse 25. Acts 17, we'll look at verses 24 and 25. Paul's explaining this God that they had made an altar to the unknown God, in case they missed one. 
Paul's introducing them to him. They said, he says in verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all man life and breath and everything. So here mine says he's not served. Others say he's not worshipped. Correct? Isn't that interesting? We're going to let this sink in for a minute. Because we've just run into a problem that some of you might have caught and some of you might not have. Didn't the Bible just say serve or worship the Lord with gladness? Yeah, we just read that he's not served or worshipped by human hands. God is spirit and those who worship slash serve him must do it how? In spirit and in truth. You see, a lot of us have been taught to go work for Jesus. Go serve the Lord. Get involved in a ministry and just go to work for Jesus. First off, if it's not what he's called you to, you're not serving the Lord or worshiping the Lord because you're doing it of your own effort. And see, when we do something out of a love response, we do it because he said, this is what I have for you. And we say, thank you for this wonderful opportunity. I'm going to go do it. For years as a pastor, I've dealt with church members who were faithful, committed, duty-bound, we would even give them a banquet because of their faithful service. They were faithful. They were actually grumpy old curmudgeons and did nothing by faith, but we rewarded them for their hard work. But as we've already seen, you could be doing all the right things, but not realize the height from which you've fallen. I actually shared, I don't know if I shared this with you guys or, or, or the Tuesday night group last week. There's a church in Florida that I'm not allowed to preach in anymore because I told the people in the church in one sermon, and I used to preach there regularly, I'm not allowed to preach there anymore because I told them, if you're on a committee right now and you're doing something that God doesn't want you to do, you can quit tonight. The pastor got so upset that he said he's not speaking here ever again because he wanted people duty bound. But Jesus said it, and by the way, we're not going to turn there, but in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, all of our translations use the word serve. But remember, serve and worship are the same thing. Jesus said you can't serve two masters. Either you're going to love the one or hate the other. But you can't serve both God and money. I'm glad he said that because that helps us know how to serve the Lord or worship the Lord. You don't worship money by saying, money, let me wash your socks, or money, money, let me cut the grass. How do you worship money? How do you serve money? You live your life in such a way that you depend on money. You trust in money to take care of you, correct? Now, you might borrow, you might beg, you might steal, you might work real hard, you might save. But when you put your full dependence on money to take care of you, you're not only serving money, you're worshiping money. And that's how you serve Slash worship God. You know, worship is more than just singing. Worship is our whole life of just walking with him, listening to him, praising him, following him, trusting in him. In everything you do, whether in word or deed, do it all to the glory of God and you will be serving God and worshiping God. Oh, now we need to know what it is that he's got for us to do, correct? Not yet. Because there's still some things we need to see. Before we get into next week, God's unrevealed will yet. 
Let's spend the rest of our time tonight just briefly looking at what has already been revealed as his will. Go back to Romans chapter 12. Look, at, look again at verses 1 and 2. There's something cool here that I can't wait to show you here as well. We'll just start with verse 2. We've already seen that offering ourselves to him is our worship, our service. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. By the way, that's a daily renewal in the Greek. You have to renew your mind throughout the day even. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Don't miss this. Didn't we just end chapter 11 with Paul saying you're never going to figure God out? He goes from saying you're never going to figure him out. But if you humble yourself and offer yourself because of his mercy as a living sacrifice like Mary and say, may it be to me as you have said, Lord, I want the life that you've chosen for me. I want to do the good works you prepared before I was even saved to do. Lord, I'm ready. He then will reveal to you his will. There's still things that he wants you to know. There are things he wants to show you in Romans, sorry, John chapter 16, verse 12. Jesus told his disciples, I have more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when the Holy Spirit comes, the one that's going to come live within you, he's going to teach you all things. This walking with Jesus is a continual life of learning more, growing in our knowledge of him through the word and through prayer and through his spirit and through study. There's lots of things that are. But at the same time, don't ever think you'll totally figure out what God's doing. But he will have a revealed plan for you on a daily basis as you just learn to walk with him. That's why the Bible says we need to learn to keep in step with the spirit. Being led of the spirit, walking under the direction and leadership of the spirit. By the way, that's going to take practice. But go ahead. And you won't read about his will. You'll actually walk it out. You'll walk it out. You won't just read about it. You, yeah. Let me show you what. Let's just start off with what has been revealed from, from his word about his will. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. Sorry, chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Look at verses 17 through 21. Ephesians 5 verses 17 through 21. It says, therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. By the way, I'm going to back up to verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled, and actually in the Greek, be being filled with the Spirit. Now, before we get to the rest of these verses, don't miss that. He said, I want you to understand what the will of the Lord is. Just like you would offer yourselves to alcohol to take control. Have you ever heard people say, man, the alcohol is talking. You know what I'm saying? They became under the control. Becoming drunk, you become under the control of the alcohol. He says, in the same way you would get the alcohol to have control, actually be drinking of the Spirit and let the Spirit of God that's within you have control. That's his will. That he had actually get to call the shots and direct you. You would respond in love and worship in view of his mercy and do what he's asked you to do. And then he says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Go to Philippians chapter 2, one book over to the right. Look at verses 1 through 8. So... 
If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, we're not going to read into how he was going to be glorified. He was glorified because of that. Let's just let that part sink in. He says, let this mind be in you, which is yours in Jesus even though Jesus was God, he humbled himself and he took the role of a servant, even though that role meant death, not only just death, but death on a cross. By the way, did you catch verses one and two again from Philippians two, though? This should all be done in view of his mercy. If you have any encouragement from Christ or being in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the spirit and any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. Don't do anything. of You can look after your own interests, but also look to the interests of others. Did you catch that? How that was tied to what Paul just said in Ephesians 4, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ and loving each other and forgiving each other and all this stuff. Before you find out what your role is, you need to learn to let what has already been revealed in God's will have control and him have control so that you won't be jockeying for position with everybody else who might have a similar call. Now, tell me this isn't true. You might be involved in the music ministry at your church and everybody wants the solo. Or preachers jockey for position on who gets to preach when the pastor's sick or going on vacation. And that's why, as we're going to see next week, when we start getting into the different roles, don't let any of you think of yourself more highly than you ought, but each with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that you've been given. If your gift is this, do it this way. If your gift is that, do it that way. We'll break that all down next week. But before God wants to reveal to you his role for you, you need to have learned how to beforehand say, if God wants me to do it, he'll open the door. And if he doesn't, he'll shut it. Man can't shut a door that God's open for me. And man can't open a door that God wants to shut for me. You understand what I'm saying? But too many Christians are like, well, I was the one. I literally saw this happen in a church. The pastor asked the lady, hey, we're having a, a bake sale. Could you bake a cake? This one lady got really mad. I'm the one who makes the cake all the time. And she got upset because that's what she does. Oh, you still don't understand. If you're willing to just do whatever it is that God has for you to do, and you do it out of worship to him, you don't care if anybody notices because you're doing it for the Lord. You don't care if anybody helps you because you're doing it for the Lord. And before we can get into what your role is, let's understand the revealed will. Be being filled with the Spirit. Oh, and by the way, if you're be being filled with the Spirit, that means you're continually drinking of the Spirit. By the way, you don't have to wait for a special anointing. 
You've already received every bit of Jesus you ever need. His divine power, second, sorry, first, yeah, second Peter chapter th one, verse three, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him. Everything we need has already been given to you. You've received fullness in Christ. Colossians chapter two, verse nine. And in him lived the whole deity in bodily form and you've been filled in him. Don't think I need a special anointing from the Lord for this. No, he's already given you everything you need, but you need to let him have control. Oh, how do we do that? We renew our minds and say, Lord, I was saved for a purpose. This life is not mine. It's yours. But I'm not going to go and come up with a plan and try to go do things for you. I want to know what it is you have for me. Why did you save me? Why did I receive mercy? How do you have or what do you have in mind for me? That's what I want. Will he show you? We just read it. We have to start all over if you can't answer this one. You'll know his will, his good, pleasing and perfect will after you what? Offer yourself as a living sacrifice, which is your service. It's your worship. I want to close tonight with one more verse. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verse 15. There's so many more verses I could have shown you tonight about his revealed will. Go read later on Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and following. Since we have been raised with Christ, let us set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. And then it gets in again, more singing, more praising, more praying, more reading, more loving each other. But look in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Did you catch that? He saved you because of his mercy. And we should thank him for that. But if all he was going to do is just save you, why are you still here? In Acts chapter 13, verse 36, Paul's preaching and he says, when David had served God's purpose for him in his generation, he, that's when he died. Until then, we need to be doing what it is he's got for each of us to do. And I can't wait to show you all the different things. There's many more that I'm going to show you next week. But next week, we're going to start getting into some of the specifics. But my prayer is that by the time God shows you what it is, your attitude will be, can't wait to do it, but he'll open those doors. He'll provide those opportunities. Some of you are frustrated because you want to do things and you want to serve and you want to be used by God, but the stupid people in my church won't let me. More on that next week. I love you. We'll see you then. Thanks for coming.